Please welcome Jesse Button. Which of us is going to be the first to fall off the stool? Probably That's what me. I want to know. <laughs> oh my god, maybe you. Maybe me, maybe me. Here we go. Oh, there we go. That's my wife. Oh. Yeah. It's got the lipstick mark. Okay, just <laughs> Judgy. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Binary. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Right. Anyway, so you are, which bits have you chosen to be, it's very hard as well because of the spoiler yeah. factor. Yeah, yeah, it's only from the sort of first third of the book, so yeah, so a bit of Adele, a bit of Olive, a bit of Quick, Marjorie Quick. Who's Marjorie a, Quick. Some people have read it here, I think, and she seems to be quite popular with them, yeah. so I did that. Okay. Okay, right, so I'm just going to start at the beginning. Um, so Adele Bastian, she's uh, 26, I think. And she uh, has come to London from Trinidad. She's been here for five years, working in a shoe shop. Not all of us receive the ends that we deserve. Many moments that change a life's course. A conversation with a stranger on a ship, for example, are pure luck. And yet no one writes you a letter or chooses you as their confessor without good reason. This is what she taught me. You have to be ready in order to be lucky. You have to put your pieces into play. When my day came, it was so hot that my armpits had made moons on the blouse the shoe shops supply to every employee. It don't matter what size, the woman said, dabbing herself with a handkerchief. My shoulders were aching, my fingertips chafing. I stared. Sweat had turned the pale hair at her brow the color of a wet mouse. London heat. It never has anywhere to go. I didn't know it, but this woman was the last customer I would ever have to serve. I'm sorry? I just said, the woman sighed, any size will do. It was nearing closing time, which meant all the crumbs of dry skin, toe jam as we called it, would have to be hoovered out of the carpet. Synth always said we could have molded a whole foot out of those scrapings. A monster to dance a jig of its own. She liked her job at Dulcis, and she'd got me mine. But within an hour of our shift, I craved the cool of my room, my cheap notebooks, my pencil waiting by the narrow bed. Girl, you've got to pick your face up, Synth would whisper. Are you working in the funeral parlor next door? I backed away to the stock cupboard, a place where I would often escape, immune as I was by now to its noxious smell of rubbered soles. I thought I might go in and scream silently at the wall of boxes. Wait, oi, wait, the woman called after me. When she was sure she had my attention, she bent low and slipped off her scuffed pump. Nearly <laughs> fell off the stool. And <laughs> 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 slipped off her scuffed pump, revealing a foot that had no toes. Not one. A smooth stump. A block of flesh resting innocently on the faded carpet. See, she said, her voice defeated as she kicked off the second shoe to reveal an identical state of affairs. I just stuff the ends with paper so it don't matter what size you bring. It was a sight, and I have not forgotten it, the Englishwoman who showed me her toeless feet. At the time, perhaps I was repulsed. We always say the young have little truck with ugliness, have not learned to mask shock. 
I wasn't that young, really, 26. I don't know what I did in the moment, but I do recall telling Synth on the way home to the flat we shared off Clapham Common and her whooping with delighted horror at the thought of those toeless feet. Stumpy McGee, she shouted. She coming to get you, Delhi. And then with an optimistic pragmatism, well, at least she can wear any shoe she want. Perhaps that woman was a witch coming to herald the change in my path. I don't believe so. A different woman did that. But her presence does seem a macabre end to that chapter of my life. Did she see in me a kindred vulnerability? Did she and I occupy a space where our only option was to fill the gap with paper? I don't know. There does remain the very slim possibility that all she wanted was a new pair of shoes. And yet I always think of her as something from a fairy tale, because that was the day that everything changed. Thanks. I'm going to take my shoes off, because I'm actually convinced these heels are going to knock me off the stool. Just checking you've got toes. Yeah. <laughs> and now... <laughs> right. Okay. Got to go next. Oh, right, we're doing yeah. them all in one go. Yeah. Oh, right, well, right, I think right. it's more exciting. Okay, cool. All right. All right, so this second bit um, is uh, Olive. So we're now in 1936 in uh, a little village about 30 kilometres outside Malaga. And it's January, and it's misty and cold, and Olive has turned up with her father, who's an art dealer. He's from Vienna. He's called Harold Schloss. Yeah, it's a nightmare, that name. Um, and, uh, yeah, let's just read it. He was murmuring in German, probably to one of his friends in Vienna. He sounded insistent, but he was too quiet for her to make out the words. When they'd been in London, and he'd had news of what was happening in his home city, the street fights the hijacked prayer meetings. He would plunge into dark silences. As she ground the beans, Olive thought of her childhood Vienna, the old and the new, the Jewish and the Christian, the educated and the curious, the psyche and the heart. When Harold said it was not safe for them to return, Olive could not quite take this in. In the circles they moved, the violence seemed so distant. Olive lowered herself into a discarded rocking chair, hesitating for fear damp had weakened the glue, woodworm seeing to the joints. Her father lit a cigarette and placed his silver box on the flaking veranda floor. He sucked on the tobacco leaf and Olive heard the satisfying crackle as his breath intensified the heat. How long do you think we'll be here? She asked, trying to sound casual. He looked up from his letters. A thin line of smoke rose straight from the cigarette tip, no breeze up here to shift its journey. The column of ash accumulated, curving downwards and scattering onto the peeling boards. Don't tell me you already want to leave. He raised his dark brows. Are you? Here he sought the particularly English word. Pining? Is there someone you left behind in London? Olive stared listlessly at the January thin orchard, briefly wishing that there was some chinless Geoffrey with a white stucco house in South Kensington and a job at the Foreign Office as an undersecretary. Hmm. But there was no one, and there never had been. She closed her eyes and could almost see the dull metal wink of imaginary cufflinks. No, it's just well, we're in the middle of nowhere. He laid the letter down and regarded her. Livy, 
What was I supposed to do? I couldn't leave you on your own, your mother. I could have been left on my own or with a friend. You always tell me you don't have any friends. <laughs> there's, there's things I want to do. Like what? She touched her pajama pocket. Nothing. Nothing important. You never made much of London anyway. Olive did not reply, for her eye had been caught by two people standing in the orchard, waiting at the fountain that lay beyond the immediate ribbon of grass that surrounded the house. It was a man and a woman, and they made no effort to hide themselves. The woman was wearing a satchel against her body, and she seemed at one in this garden, the canes in the parched earth, the only remnant of the tomatoes, aubergines and lettuces that must have thrived here once when someone cared. The man had both his hands stuffed in his pockets, his shoulders hunched, chin down, but the woman stared up at the muscular satyr in the fountain, poised with his empty canton. She closed her eyes, breathing in the air. Olive breathed too, the faint wafts of charcoal fire and fields of sage. The emptiness of this place, its sense of desolation. She wondered if there was a means to get that water flowing. The couple began to approach the house, both of them with a pace as sure as the mountain goats, avoiding rabbit holes and minor rocks in their seemingly inexorable desire to approach. It jolted Olive, this confidence. She and her father watched them come near, their progress punctuated by the light snap of bracken beneath their feet. The woman was younger than Olive had thought. Her eyes were dark, her satchel bulky and intriguing. She had a small nose and a little mouth, and her skin was burnished like a nut. Her dress was plain black with long sleeves that buttoned at the wrist. Her hair was also dark, thick, and braided into a long plait. But as she turned to look at Harold, strands within it glinted redly in the morning sun. The man had almost black hair and was older, probably in his mid-twenties. Olive wondered if they were married. She couldn't take her eyes off him. His face was that of a Tuscan noble, his body a sinewy featherweight boxers. He was dressed in pressed blue trousers and an open-necked shirt like those Olive had seen on the men in the fields, although his was pristine and theirs were threadbare. His face was fine-boned, his mouth had an agile facility, his eyes were dark brown and they grazed Olive's body like a small electrical current. Were these two together? Olive was probably gawping, but she couldn't look away. We bring bread, the man said in an accented English, as his companion fumbled in her satchel and raised a loaf aloft. Harold clapped his hands with delight. Thank God, he said. I'm starving. Hand it over here. There you go. It's like a low, a low accent. <laughs> Oh dear, don't give myself an easy job. Okay, and then this is uh, 1960s, we're back with Adele, and this is um, uh, her boss, Marjorie Quick, has taken a story that she's written. Uh, she's now working at an art gallery and uh, published it, kind of without her permission. But she got some money for it, so she's a bit like mixed about her attitude to it. <clears throat> the first story I ever published in England appears on pages 74 to 77 of the London Review of October 1967. It was called The Toeless Woman, and they even paid someone to draw an accompanying illustration. They missed the E off the end of my first name, so it looks like my father wrote it. Her father's name was also Adele. 
Uh, I still have two copies of that particular edition, the one that I'd purchased myself and the other I'd posted to my mother in Port of Spain and which was returned to me years later after her death. My mother had annotated her copy with the words, my girl, and to my amusement, had added the missing E in biro. <laughs> years later at her funeral, my second cousin Louisa told me that Mrs. Bastian had passed that review round all her friends like a one-woman lending library, strictly insisting that they could only have an evening with it each. I think more people in Port of Spain read that story than in the literate sections of London town. <laughs> what they made of it, I'll never know. It was Quick, of course, who was to blame or thank for the story finding its way to the editor. I think she relished the symmetry of it, how after leaving the raw thing on her desk, she was able to leave a copy of the magazine containing it on mine. I thought it was odd how she had sat in her garden and exhorted me to disregard the opinions of others, only to go and submit my work for mass approval. Find page 74, she commanded, scratching aggressively at the base of her neck. I obeyed her, sitting in that viewless room in the skeleton, wishing she would go away so that I could be in private to study this vision of my almost name on the page. But Quick did not leave, and I had to hold in the tsunami of sound I wanted to unleash across the square, a cry of satisfaction so loud it would have travelled over the rooftops to the coast of Kent. My father's name, Adele Bastian, his daughter's writing underneath. Next time I swore there would be no missing E. But for now, it would do. The words, at least, were mine. Quick smiled, and the effect on her gaunt face was transformative, gleeful, youthful, briefly illuminated with pleasure. She was dressed that day in a dark green pair of trousers, slightly flared, and a pussy bow silk blouse with a seasonal repeating pattern of brown leaves. I noticed the slight sag of the material on her thighs. She was definitely thinner. It was an excellent story, she said, so I sent it in. I even got you a fee. 30 pounds. 30 pounds? I hope that was all right. You don't mind I went ahead? I, d I don't know how to thank you. Thank you? She laughed, sitting down opposite me, fumbling in her trouser pocket, lighting a cigarette and taking a deep drag. Don't thank me, she said. It was a fantastic read. Did you base it on something that happened at Dulcis? Mm. Sort of. She gazed at me. How does it feel? to be a published writer. I looked back down at the page, the ink that couldn't be rubbed away, the deceptive permanence of the paper. I felt exalted, my mind a cathedral with an actual congregation who wished to visit my altar. Incredible, I said. You'd better write some more, she replied. Keep going at it, it seems to work. I will, thank you, thank you again. She went to the window, cigarette in hand, and looked down at the alley where the smokers gathered. I couldn't imagine her mixing with them, the bird of paradise amongst the canaries. Would you have let me look at it, she asked, if you'd known what I might do? I don't know, I said. It was a good question. I wondered. Anyway, you've got a terrible view here. Did Pamela choose this room? We can get you a nicer one. I'm fine, thank you. A nice view would probably distract me from my work. She raised an eyebrow. How puritanical. Quick could tease me as much as she wanted. I didn't care. I was published. She remained at the window, her back to me again. How about Reed's news on Mr. Scott's painting, eh? He's looking very pleased with himself. Looks like we are going to have an exhibition. He wants to call it the Swallowed Century. But we cannot exhibit only one painting. I could hear the disdain in her voice. Her body was slightly curled over as if she was shielding a ball of pain. 
I didn't know, I said. She turned. No? Is everything all right between you and Mr. Scott? Yes. No. Uh, uh, just a misunderstanding. I see. She straightened up, leaning against the wall. Want to talk about it? Oh, there's nothing much to say. Quick fixed her gaze on me, so reluctantly I went on. I went to his mother's house in Surrey. Nice? Nice. We had dinner. And then afterwards he told me he loved me, and I didn't say it back, and it all went wrong from there. I haven't spoken to him for three weeks. Quick inhaled thoughtfully on her cigarette. No harm done. I saw the way he looked at you. You've got him in the palm of your hand. I don't think so. I wasn't very polite. Adele, you don't have to say or do anything you don't want to. I don't suppose he loves you for your politeness. Thank you. It's so easy and so lovely to see her joy at being published and your own joy as well. <laughs> it's, such an, it's such a clear echo, yeah. I think. I didn't even realise like, when I was writing this book. Really? No, I mean, there are parts <laughs> where I'm... Obviously, I realise a bit more now, but there are parts where, yes, I think something flared up, but th there's lots that... My mum read it and she's like, Jess, this is very autobiographical. Yeah. But what the thing is, the story of the toeless feet is my mum's story because she worked in a shoe shop Oh, in really? Oxford Street, when she was and lived in Clapham, when, and when she was 16, 17, she served a woman who told her, it doesn't matter what size you bring me. So, so she, she didn't know that was going to be in there. So yeah. the meta layers going the layers on layers and layers and layers. Uh, I thought it was very funny when you said about, about being paid £30 and the joy of that, because that is what the Guardian still pay now. Yes. Um, you get paid? Oh, yeah. My God. <laughs> I need to get on the phone to my agent. Um, so how did you decide on these two worlds? Because the worlds intersect, they are connected by this painting, but we've got London and you know, Soho in the 60s and we've got, we've got Southwest mm. Spain in the 1930s. How did you choose those places? Um, well, the Spanish stuff came about because I, I did Sp Spanish as a degree, and, but like it worked way before that. I had an amazing Spanish teacher at school who would take us out of the classroom and take us to see Almodovar films and Medem films and we'd re read El País and it would just be so much more than just grammar. I mean, my grammar was horrific by the time I got to university and I was right. in remedial lessons, but I had a great cultural um, experience of Spain. And, um, yeah, I just... Uh, I but was why Spain at that particular well, point rather than yeah, Spain? Yeah, because no. I'm, I'm very interested in the sort of psychic scar, if you like, that has been left behind by the Spanish Civil War. Um, I feel like it's not something that's necessarily been dealt with politically particularly well or wisely. Mm. Um, and... I was, I don't know, it's not, it's not a direct uh, response. I think it's more of a kind of organic interest that I've had. And I wanted to write something not about your Hemingway-esque and your Orwellian reportage or a sort of outsider's view, I, and although I'm obviously an outsider, I wanted to write an experience as lived on the ground in a daily normal life of normal Spaniards just wanting to look after their cabbages. Literally, that was a line I read somewhere. And... Um, so that was that. That was why I was interested in that, but like no, how it happened. But also the, the the characters, the main. I mean, obviously there's Isaac, who is very hot. He's gorgeous. He is gorgeous. But there are the the, the main kind of drivers of the story are are the women, and they are the people who are telling us what has happened. So in that sense, it's a d another fashion of Spain, a different selection yeah. of voices. Yeah, I mean Teresa, who was the woman with the satchel. Um, she, you know, she gets the 
you know, the rough end of justice, both as a, her mother was a gypsy and she's a woman and she's unmarried. So she's all these sort of dangerous, uh, alarm, alarming, has these alarming elements to her in the society that was, you know, in, in uproar. Um, but Spain actually was very liberal and developed compared to other countries in Europe. And then it just got slammed down. I mean, abortion was legal. Women were teachers. Was abortion legal? I didn't yes, know that. Yes, and divorce. And then it all got repealed. And, and uh, you know, it was very sad. Under Franco. Before. Before Franco. But, but you know, absolutely with Franco. Yeah. But I, I was interested, you know, and, and many Spanish Civil War historians will tell you, you know, the Spanish Civil War often gets described as just the dress rehearsal for World War Two. Yeah. Actually, it was bubbling 30, 40 years prior. Mm. And uh, I wanted to, you know, to show that as well. And what's interesting, I think, about the book is that it's done on a very small scale. So it's about <coughs> what happens to the people in this house, the, 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 the Duchess's finca, yeah, um, yeah. and the people in the village, yes. and kind of the people beyond that. And the, their world is quite, it's quite small, actually. It's very Tiny. local. And it was like that. You know, people didn't go, people in the south, people in Malaga would not probably have ever even gone to Madrid, you know, or even some of them Seville. They were absolutely tiny worlds, microcosms, mm. but war did come to them, but it came to them more in the sort of sense of personal vendettas and, and those with power instilling fear into those who didn't have power. So there's, there's, the, there's the war outside the house and then there's also the war inside the house, yeah. which is kind of, I suppose, between Harold and his daughter, but also between Harold and his wife, yeah. Sarah, who you have this brilliant line, which is, I think, she, she, she laughs, in, laughs in ballrooms and cries in bedrooms, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah, you know, a yeah. devastating description of her. Yeah. Tell, us, tell us about the domestic conflict. Yeah, well, I mean, I kind of, uh, I started with the idea of Olive, who was a painter, a secret painter, who felt that she couldn't express this particularly easily her father being a quite famous Viennese art dealer and I needed then to create a family I mean drama is always a bit more fun <laughs> I suppose than like happy families um and so did you start with Olive was she the first person in that family that you thought yeah of? Olive and Harold I, c I yeah. remember like there's a scene that you know just totally got chucked, which was they were leaving her, her Sarah in a in a convent in a you know kind of slash asylum um, uh, but you decided to bring the madness along. Yeah, yeah. Well, I felt that Sarah needed to be there as well for other reasons, other power dynamics. I'm fascinated by an enclosed space, a house, and all these secrets, you know, the telephone ringing, the wife who won't answer the telephone, why won't she answer? Yeah. Who knows what's going on in the attic? I loved the fact I could put Olive in the attic. That's a yeah. kind of little acknowledgement of women in attics. Um, Quite a big acknowledgement of women in yeah, attics. She, well, does, she does spend a lot of time up there. She spends her whole time She's in the attic painting. Yeah. Um, but then I was, you know, I, yeah. And then Do you want me to say why I wanted the London stuff yes. to marry that in? Um, so I'm also super interested in British uh, colonial history and the legacy that's been left behind. And um, that kind of started a bit with the miniaturist. But, uh, and I felt that if I'm going to write about London and a London that I know and a London that was coming along in the middle of the 20th century, that the mass immigration of you know, ex-colonialists and their experience is absolutely intrinsic, I think, to London and England's uh, and the British Isles' makeup. So it was... And I just basically didn't want to let either of those stories go. I was just greedy. So right. I just like shoved them together and hoped that they kind of interweave well. But you grew up in South London. I did. And I wondered when you were doing the research about Odell's London, mm. I mean, 
was it different to the London that you... Because th the London that we're told exists in the 1960s <coughs> is, is really not the London no. that you show us. No, and I think it's partly for my parents. My parents are old parents in terms... Well, my mum had me when she was 39, so not super old, but, like, my mum and dad... For were, then, Well, though. they were born in the war. Right. They were born in the Blitz. Um, and so my dad would always sort of, you know, whenever the swinging 60s gets described in Carnaby Street, it's just like, no, Jess, you know, we were... London, England was broke after the war. It was grey. You know, we made our own fun, but it was tough. And I also think that if you're, you know, writing a novel through the eyes of a, someone who is an, an outsider in many senses, it's going to be challenging. Um, so, yeah, but then, you know, she comes up against the more glamorous elements of London as well, or the more sort of stereotypical elements. Why did you choose somebody who was from the colonies rather than somebody who was like, you know, a Londoner who was a different kind of working class Londoner who's a different version of it? What was the attraction of that to you? And did you think twice about it? Because I'm quite sure you're going to get people going, mm, not sure about her writing black. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Adele to me was always Trinidadian. She came to me quite early. I found a fantastic book in the London Library called Disappointed Guests, which was a, a competition in 1963 set by the Institute of Race Relations of students in Britain from African countries and West Indian countries writing essays about their experience. And I found this amazing essay by a girl called Patricia who was from Trini. And I, that's where I started thinking of Adele. So I never sort of shifted Adele's skin colour onto her as a kind of augmentation of the plot. Yeah. Adele's skin colour is one element of her. Um, she's a Caribbean, she's a Londoner, she's prim, but she's also jokey, you know, she's, she's everything. She's also herself and she falls in love and she has ambitions. But making her a former colonialist, partially it's just a novelist's personal interest in that Englishness that was inculcated into them from the 40s. In, in some ways she's more English than... The, Completely. The, than the, you know, she comes to London with an idea of London that she's doesn't exist, that she's shocked Totally. By. You know, they were, you know, school children in the 40s, they had posters of Princess Margaret on the walls. They were constantly fed... That the, seems the abusive now. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Well, she was very attractive when she was young. <laughs> but, you know, this idea that England is your doorstep and um, we're all one big happy empire. And this was fed them, fed them, fed them. Videos of, well, not videos, films of bowler hats and red buses and, you know, all this idea of, you know, she knew more Tennyson and Shakespeare. And then she got here, and this is from accounts I've read, of shocking scenes of white men portering in Waterloo. Yeah. She didn't realise that, you know, that kind of striation of class was going on in, in London and England. I mean, the racism in the book is quite shocking. And mm. um, there is a point where she's in the office in the, the snooty art gallery and one of the people who works there t says of her, wog. Yeah, yeah. And I realised that I'd never actually seen that word no. written, written down and it was really, really, really shocking. Mm. And then she just kind of gets, gets on with her day. Yeah, I guess it's that weighing up of pick your battles. I mean, it's not something I could ever understand. Um, but uh, I, I've got a friend who's a professor of Caribbean history who has many friends from the West Indies and I s showed her an early draft and she said, Jesse, this is great, but I think you really need to up the racism. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, she said, my friends, you know, they won't, sh they would give and change in a shop and someone would drop the coins into the palm without touching or, you know, that kind of thing, or like touching the face on buses, you know, all that stuff um, accumulates. It must, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, I, I, yeah, it was, and I was, I was, I had to take a lot of consideration and mm. I sent the whole manuscript to a professor at the University of West Indies who is 
Trinidadian and is more or less the same age as Adele would be now. Mm. And she went, thankfully, and very generously went through all the bits, which, which is patois, and checked for me. So, right. yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, but it was something I just thought, no, she's Trinidadian, so I'll just take whatever flack I'm going to get given. Um, the the picture um, that you talk about, Rufina and Rufina and the lion, yeah. um, um, which is at the centre of, of of this of this mystery, is made up. The picture is made up. The artist is made up. I finished the book and I immediately googled <laughs> uh, to see if the artist was real and see if the picture was real. Because you, amazing. I mean that, but that, but th- that, you know, that my is my work incor- is done. No, but that's really, really impressive because there were other pictures in that I didn't care about that I didn't like, but I wanted to know about the picture. Yeah. Um, that wasn't real. Was there anything that inspired you or anybody that inspired you? Because I know the the doll's house and the miniatures yeah. obviously was was a real doll's house. Yeah. But this is a made up picture Completely. by an imaginary artist yeah and i think yeah the miniatures was super solid like a super physical object but this was so much more nebulous and there are some artists that i really love um and i i was sort of like making a fusion of them a kind of weird hybrid carlo frida carlo um early miro um bellini so but my I, I i've got a friend as well who's an art expert art historian and he said just be careful you don't make it sound too much of a mashup right. <laughs> i was like oh well i did it anyway but. can you paint at all no, no you're completely scaleless awful. Yeah. i did a portrait once of my friend and i and she used to hang it on the mantelpiece as a joke because it would just cheer up how bad it was we look like conjoined twins. <laughs> and I did the lines of the teeth with black paint. So it's, oh, yes. you know, just horrendous. No, it's, the, it's, it's, I just can't. So I think that's probably why as well. I have this kind of awe. You've given awe the gift people to, who can to, do that. to people who can do it. Um, you, you, you mentioned um, at the beginning of that quote, you said about being, being prepared for your luck when it comes. <laughs> yeah. do, did you feel prepared when the miniaturist took off in oh, the way yeah, that it did. Yeah, totally. You were just sort of sitting <laughs> at home thinking, I, I can't wait for my I 100%. just knew, yeah, I knew that, no, God, no, no. It was w- way too much too soon. It was rapid and, I mean, at the time, when it all sold, I sort of had insomnia for a week because I was convinced I was going to lose the ability to write in some weird sort of exchange, like the Little Mermaid loses her voice. Mm. <laughs> um, um, look at the stuff. No. Um, and now I'm going to sing, no. And... Um, yeah, I was a bit uh, freaked out by it. But actually only when I did all the stuff for the miniaturist in the UK, in the States, and then in Europe, it was all fine. But it was only about, I don't know, eight months afterwards that it just just like steamrolled me. I was exhausted. And I just felt guilty that I couldn't meet this. I couldn't meet the book. I couldn't match the book. It was weird. It wasn't your first book. There was a there was a book before that, wasn't there? Because I think there's this idea that you're somehow an overnight yeah, success. Yeah, yeah. You were working as an actress, then you were working as a temp. Yeah. And I think when you wrote the miniatures, am I right in saying that you wrote it pretending that you were sitting writing <laughs> emails yes. in your temp I office? I would email myself the book, yeah, at work, um, pretending. Did you ever get fired from your temp job? <laughs> never. No, I never got fired. I did get caught a couple of times, yeah. but they were fine about it because... Right. Um, I was quite open about um, my uh, plans. Right. Uh, and that, but the, but the, the first novel you wrote tells tells about that and what the experience was that you that you went through with that because that wasn't the experience of the miniature. No, no. Well, I I, I had this idea about these uh, siblings in Georgian London who fake a Shakespeare play, which is based on a true story that actually ironically just gets out of control and too successful <laughs> for their own good. Richard mm-hmm. Sheridan buys it, puts it on its Drury Lane, and um, I I. 
you know, it's a kind of proto-novel. I think one of the characters is a sort of proto-Nella. But I started sending it to literary agents without finishing it, and then they wanted more, and I was just desperately trying to type it, and eventually I had to confess I don't actually have this novel. And they were just, like, curtailed contact with me. Right. That was nice. Fingers burnt. Yeah, yeah. And then you went to join the Cotters Brown Writing Academy. Yeah, I did the first uh, novel writing course that they did in 2011, yeah. And what was the ex- experience of doing that? Was it kind of like, yes, I'm at school and I've got bounties <laughs> and I've, you know, you know, homework <laughs> and it's good? Yeah, I mean, I'm quite a geek, so <laughs> I quite liked having homework. No, I, I found it very... Um, uh, well, it was a good boost to self-esteem because it was, uh, you know, I was 20 seven or eight I can't remember and uh things have been slowing up in the acting and it had been a bit sort of demoralizing so getting a place on that was like amazing actually um but it was weird being reviewed by peers and people just essentially weirder than acting what, where you're standing up on a stage in complete strangers <laughs> staring at you. I've never you? felt that to be weird. I really? don't know what it says about me. No. I find it odder to be myself on platforms than to be, I don't know, somebody else. Can't wait for the memoir. So in the book, one of the characters says, in the end, a piece of art only succeeds when it creators, its creator possesses the belief that brings it into being. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, paging Freud, you know, what is it that, <laughs> what is it that, that, you, that you struggle with now that you've had that enormous success? I mean, you, <clears throat> that you're going to write something that's shit or yep. that, you, that, that you're going to write something that, that doesn't sell as many millions. I mean, what, what do you think when you sit down to write something? after a success like that you know actually this might sound disingenuous but I didn't think I didn't worry too much about the success of the miniaturist when I was writing the muse in the sense that I would ever replicate something so odd and erroneous in the whole pattern of publishing I just Mm. didn't you know it's quite liberating to know well you know I could I'm not going to sell in so many countries. It probably won't do this or that, you know. And and actually, the toughest thing was exactly what it is every single time, which is a blank page and your own force of will trying to make something work. That was the challenge. But the the difference was at the time I was doing a lot of uh, promo and PR, sort of being very glib about how easy it is to write a book, you know, once it's written and then going home and cracking up because I couldn't make this bloody book work, you know? So that was that was schizophrenic and challenging in, in many ways, but, you know, it worked out in the end. Yes. Just about. It did. Please join me in thanking Jesse Barton. <laughs> <laughs>